1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18 will be our passage today. Jeremiah and I um, shared a chuckle over the reading of Scripture, very much coinciding with um, the passage we'll be learning from today. But I hope it's not, I'm sure it's not lost on most of you, that the entire service is usually, well, we try to uh, wrap it up all in one theme. And uh, sometimes we make that explicit, other times not. But this theme is clearly uh, the return of the Lord and living in light of the return. But this is 1 Thessalonians four, thirteen to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Pray with me one more time. Gracious Father, we ask you, both for speaker and listener alike, that your spirit would come and fill our hearts, that we would be eager, eagerly awaiting the return of our Lord, that that date in history, though no one knows, would be our longing for date, a date we pine after and yearn for, knowing that all the troubles that we face here, all the pains, all the sorrows that we have, will be made right on that day. Cause us to hope in that day, not grieve excessively before then, but that our hope would dispel our grief as we look forward to our Lord coming. We ask you to bless this time in his name. And amen. Okay, having instructed the Thessalonians to live a life pleasing to God in holiness and love, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12, Paul finally gets to the central doctrinal issue of the letter to the Thessalonians both the first and the second letter. The return of Christ. The return of Christ, which should put a smile on our face that all of this stuff that we live with, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, is defined by, is completely interpreted by the lens of Christ is coming back. He is coming back one day. As sure as he died and rose again, so sure is he coming back. And Paul has alluded to this doctrine so far, but now he takes it up in, in totality, the close of four and the beginning of five. And when Paul talks about this return of Christ, the appearance of Christ, he's not talking about 
just some emotionless point of doctrine. For Paul, all doctrine is application. All application is doctrine. And the glorious appearance of Christ is actually used quite pastorally here. I'm sure you caught that in verse 13. He uses it pastorally to help the Thessalonians out in their grief. He has applied the idea and the hope of Christ's coming in different ways so far throughout the letter, but not in such a heavy, bang, dead weight as he does here. He has already told us that we need to imitate Christ and the apostles until he comes. He tells us that the word is working in us until Christ comes back. He tells us we should grow in love and holiness until Christ comes back. In in chapter 5, he says, we are children of light, not children of the darkness. And here in 13 to 18, he says that Jesus' return for his people dispels our grief for those who we know that died in the Lord. Jesus' return, his his glorious appearance deals with our grief for those who have passed away in the Lord. What is grief? What is grief like? What causes grief? We grieve over our loved ones who pass away like the Thessalonians did. We might grieve over some relational breach of trust or betrayal. My son is even still grieving that we moved away from California. And that was two moves ago. (laughs) But we grieve. I think it's fair to say grief is the emotion of loss. It's the pain of loss. When someone isn't present any longer, when something has been taken from us, we grieve. It's sorrow, but it's sorrow with pain of loss, pain of absence. I won't experience that friendship again, or I won't have that person in my life again, or I might might not have, for my son, that playground again. (laughs) But it's loss. Something has been taken away from us. And so we grieve. And to this grief, Paul says, the pain of loss, the pain of separation will be short, but but long will be the joy of reunion. Grief is brief, relatively speaking. But it's only relatively speaking in light of the eternity that's on the horizon for the believer. Jesus promised appearance completely redefines any pain, any loss, any grief, any sorrow we have in our life. So much so that it even defines how we look at death. Death, that supposedly undefeated enemy. Paul says, death is actually redefined in light of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. He defeated death already. 
death has already been dealt its mortal wound. And while in time we'll see the finality of that, now as believers, we're supposed to live like death isn't the finality. Some of the Puritans would say death is our birthday. That's the day when we actually begin to live. We walk through that door and we'll think this life was just a vapor. Just a, just a quick little steam from the pot of the kettle. All will be made right. All will be dealt with when the Lord comes back. So what I want to talk about today is, is how Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and his return puts away our grief, or at least mitigates it, lessens it, or puts it in perspective. To grieve is not a sin by any means. The Holy Spirit does not sin, and he grieves when we sin against him. So grief is not a sin, but to excessively grieve as if we, if we have no hope is to simply say, Christ isn't coming back, and I'm all alone. But we know that's not true. Not only do we look forward to his coming, but he actually looks forward to his coming. So first off, I want, I want us to see here how Jesus' death and resurrection means that Christian's death is only now just sleep. The return of Christ means when we die, it's actually not final. It's just now called sleeping. They're sleeping saints. They're not dead, departed, never seen again saints. If you look at 13 and 14 there, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, Thessalonians, about those who are asleep or those who have passed away so that you don't grieve as others do who have no hope. And 14, here's the kicker. Because. For. Because since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We don't have to grieve as others do who have no hope because Jesus has already died and rose again. Level one of hope is understanding the historical death and resurrection of Christ has already occurred. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not just some fairy tale. It actually happened in history. And on that date, we can think of and say, I believe I'll see them again. My brother or sister in the Lord. So the historical death and resurrection gives the believer great hope. Secondly, Paul says, only once in here does he use it. He does say, those who have passed away are dead. He says that in verse 16. But every other time when he talks about those who have passed away, he doesn't use that word. He uses fallen asleep. 13, those who are asleep. 14, those who are asleep. 15, the coming of the Lord will not precede those who are asleep. Do we think about death like that? Do we think about death like a nap? I love sleep. Sarah will tell you. I'm eager to go to bed each night. Love sleep. That doesn't mean I'm lazy. I just love sleep. 
and I have weaknesses. I get tired easy. But do we think about death like sleep? Paul says, when he tells Timothy, he says, Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That was at the cross. There is surely a fulfillment or a, uh, let's say, a realization later on when death will be dealt with finally and fully. But even before then, Paul here and in many other places says, we need to live as if death is already dead. Death has died. And the words of somebody else, much smarter than me, the, the cross of Christ brought death to death. <laughs> so, death is sleep for the Christian. It's mind-blowing to consider. But death is sleeping. I wonder if we would think about death like we do sleep. Most of us, and depending on your personality, you might look forward to sleep and then the morning and just assume, oh, when I close my eyes, I'm going to wake up in the morning and a new day will start and I can put tomorrow behind me and have a new day. New mercies. If maybe we need to think about death like that. I can't wait to die and be with Christ. I'm not the only one who gets exhausted after a day with kids and business and things. But I look forward to sleep. I look even more forward to that final sleep. You wake up and you behold Christ. No more suffering. No more sorrows. No more struggles. No more eking by, dealing with physical illnesses, weaknesses. Death has been rendered different by the cross. It's been changed into sleep. And just for the sake of context, what's going on with the Thessalonians here? The Thessalonians, as you can tell in verse 13, were excessively grieving. Paul isn't condemning them for grieving. He says, you shouldn't grieve as if you don't have hope. Because if you grieve like you don't have hope, you're grieving as if Christ isn't coming back or as if he hasn't already destroyed death on the cross. Christ dealt with our sin. He dealt with the powers of darkness and he already dealt with death on the cross. The, the fine, final death blow to death is really on layaway until Christ comes back. That's how sure it is. And so, they, but they were, they were grieving. Why? why? Why were they grieving? There are a lot of reasons why some people think the Thessalonians were grieving. And I think there are probably two or three reasons in each commentary I had. Dozens of reasons. Well, this is why they're grieving. This is why they're grieving. We don't know why they're grieving. Exactly. We know they're grieving because some of their brothers and sisters in the faith died. And they didn't know what to make of it. 
Now, the noble thing about the Thessalonians is that they took the death of Christ, putting a death below to death, so real, they thought death shouldn't happen. So strong, maybe naive, you may, might say, were they that they thought, well, Christ died. What, what are people still dying for? <laughs> maybe they just thought naively death would not happen. Maybe they thought, okay, our, our, our believing friends and family members have died, and that means they're going to miss out on something in the future with Christ. They're going to miss out on some glorious event. We don't know exactly why they were concerned or grieved that their Christian friends or family members were dead. And I, I, I should just say this. Everything in 13 to 18 is about the Christian's death, not, not the non-believers. But... Why exactly? It could have been that they were actually still bringing over some of their pagan idolatry into their idea about death. If you remember in chapter 1, we were reminded that they were brought out of idolatry to serve the living and true God. And so John Calvin says, in bewailing the dead, they might have retained something of their old superstition. So maybe they're thinking pagan false religious thoughts about death still. We don't know. Whatever it was, it was causing them to think the sleeping saints are in trouble. Maybe they not only wouldn't be around when Christ comes back, but they wouldn't even be saved when Christ comes back. Or they would not get a glorified body. We just don't know. But what we do know is Paul says, understand this. Get your act together. <laughs> You're grieving as if Christ hasn't died. And Christ has already died. And he's promised to come back and he will come back. He says to them in 13 and 14, just as sure as you are that Jesus died and rose, remember Thessalonians when you banked your life on that? Just as sure as you believe that, you can be sure that Christ will come back. And he will bring back with him the sleeping saints, those who have fallen asleep. I think of the last few years, probably everybody in this room has had a more familiar knowledge of death than we want to. Think about those who we know who passed away from COVID. You'll see them again. Think about those who passed away in, the, in 2020, COVID. Passed away in 2010s, in the teens, your friends who passed away in the 1990s, those who passed away in the 80s, those who passed away in the 70s, in the 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, so forth and so on. They will all be with Christ when he returns. You'll see them again. And, and should we be awake or alive when the Lord returns, 
we're going to see them glorified. So for the Christian, there really is no such thing as a permanent grave. It is true to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. But even, even death for the believer is temporary. Our grief for our departed saints is a grief of absence, not a grief of hopelessness. One day we will be reunited. One day we will be reunited with all of our friends and family in the Lord who passed away. And the first time we see them will be there in glory. Secondly, this passage teaches us not only does Jesus' death and resurrection means death is no longer death, but it's actually sleep. But this passage shows us that Jesus' return means he doesn't lose any. He doesn't lose any of his people. Whether one is alive or dead, sleeping, at Jesus' coming, he gets them all back. Gets them all. He loses none. Twice in this verse, in 15 and 16, He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, verse 16, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the... The honor is given to those who have passed away. When Christ comes back, he will first bring to himself all who have already passed away. He will wake up out of the tombs by his powerful shout, his own who have passed away. And I think there is something to this, the dead first, then the living. And I was glad to see myself a little validated by a commentator who said this, more likely the Thessalonians understood that only the living would have the honor of going out to meet the Lord in his royal triumphal parousia. So his, his return. The Thessalonians thought only the living are going to be able to enjoy that sight and appreciate that experience. And the apostle responds by saying that the dead will rise first and will have this place of honor in the procession. The dead in Christ will no way be excluded from the grand celebration that will surround the parousia of the Lord, but will enjoy a place of honor. Recognition of this fact would give the living believers great comfort in their grief. It wouldn't be unlike the Lord to tend to those who have experienced something another group of his people have not and tended to them first. I think there is something to be said there, even if it is a little bit of sanctified imagination, that there will be honor and dignity granted to those who have fallen asleep because they have experienced something the living Christian never did.
none of us here know what it's like to die. None of us here have had the fear of death on that hospital bed of ourselves. None of us here have been tempted to renounce our faith in light of death. None of us here have actually experienced something should the Lord come back next second that the dead have experienced. A a, a possible real dread and fear of what will my faith actually produce? We, We believe, I believe with my whole heart when I die, I will go to see the Lord. That's theory. Until it actually happens. Oh, we believe it with all our might. Oh, yeah. And I look forward to it. But that's theoretical until it actually happens in experience. And the picture here is that quite possibly the Lord comes back with all of his angels, a mighty, grand, and I like what the commentator did there because it is a celebration. It is a great moment of joy where the whole congregation of God's people arrive together. But those who have fallen asleep, they go to the Lord first. And then the living go up to meet him. And notice, I want to camp out here on verse 16 just for a moment. The power, notice the power and authority with which Jesus brings them out of the graves. He says, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. This is probably all one giant moment, but maybe distinct things happening in that moment. The, the, the verbiage Jesus used, uh, excuse me, Paul uses in this passage is really interesting. Jesus' cry of command is, in secular Greek, is used of a, of a shipmaster yelling to his rowers. or an officer shouting to his troops. There's authority in one, and the group does what the man tells them to do. And Jesus, in my, in my understanding of this, he shouts, he has a cry of command, and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet are essentially one activity. So Jesus comes back, and he shouts for the archangel, and the archangel speaks and blows the trumpet, and that causes the dead to rise and come to their Savior. And this is not a secret, invisible gathering, disappearing of the saints, but a clear, public, victorious, grand reunion. There's nothing hiding in this passage Jesus wants to come back, like Matthew says, so visibly, like it's like lightning in the sky. He's not coming back meek and just kind of like, I don't know if now's the right time. Let me snatch a couple first, cause them to disappear. No, he's coming back and everyone will know that is the Lord. And it will be grand. Wonderful, celebratory, jubilant, 
And it'll be the day we've all been waiting for. So he, he tells the archangel to blow the trumpet. And Matthew, Revelation, and most, most notably in 1 Corinthians 15, this trumpet is sounded. And this is how Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. That's happening in this passage. It's not a, a quick private snatching away of some people. It is a grand celebratory entrance where the, the kingdom of our God and Christ comes down. And he dwells with his people. That, that's the, that's it. I, I, I know I, I'm, not a, I'm, not, I'm not a wordsmith. This is the whole enchilada. The big kahuna. This is everything. This is the day we've all been waiting for. How wonderful it will be. Everything like that changed. No more death, sorrow, crying, anything. Pain, allergies, nothing. All will be made right. G.K. Beale, a commentator, says, this is no rising from the dead, but a glorious transformation of an old world body for a new world body, a new creation body that is made ready for eternal life before the face of God forever. And, and the trumpet, the trumpet's going to sound. The trumpet in the Old Testament and the New wasn't a musical instrument. It's warfare. It's for war. And it was sounded for victory. And here it is announced, Christ has won. Christ has won. And all the saints, dead or alive, will be vindicated, validated when Christ comes back and the trumpet blows and the dead in Christ rise and the living see it and then the, and the, the living go to him up in the air. This is an announcement of victory. This is like the, the last moment version of the cross statement. It is done. It is finished. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't already found this out, there's no secret rapture here. There's no secret rapture here. Some of you might hold to that view. I respect the person who holds to the view, but I don't respect the view. There's no exegetical evidence for the view. There's no biblical basis for the view. There's no secret rapture here, which would then be followed by a great tribulation tribulation, which would then be followed by a thousand-year millennial reign, which would then be followed by the devil freed, wreaking havoc, making war, and then judgment, and then Christ comes back for the second, second coming. That's not happening. This is one return of Christ to gather all his people in, separate sheep, goats, wheat, tares, and then bring in the new heavens, new earth. It is a glorious, glorious day. And it's what we look forward to. And here's my point in in all of this, not to be lost in this second point. Jesus isn't losing any. The grave is not holding on to anybody. Jesus will come back and he will take everybody that he calls his people to himself. And the grave cannot hold on to those that have already been captured by it. And this is the will of him who sent me, Christ says, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He will get everybody back. Now, for the believer, this is comfort, encouragement, consolation, excitement, jubilation. This is everything. For the non-Christian, this is not that. For the person who's not a Christian, it is not a day of joy. It is a gray of unceasing grief, unceasing sorrow, an extreme bitter regret. This day will happen and we don't know when. And we, we should look forward to it. But a little split. I eagerly want Christ to come back because I'm tired of living in the sin-cursed earth. But I don't want him to come back while I know people I know are not in the Lord. And it will be finally done. There will be no mercy. There will be nothing. So we talk to our brothers, sisters, or our family members, our friends who, not, who are not in the Lord, appeal to them. This day is happening. I cannot wait for it to happen. I sincerely desire you to be there with me. I'm going to the kingdom. Please come with me. I'm going. I beg you, please come. This is the day of the Lord. And as it says in Psalm 119, excuse me, 118, it is the day of the Lord. 
let us be glad. But also in that same psalm, the horns of the altar, the sacrifice of Christ, it's not all happy in that psalm. So this is, this is the truth here. Jesus' death and bar- resurrection means death. We don't have to be intimidated by death anymore. It is now considered sleep. Secondly, he's not losing any. Whether someone is alive or dead, Christ is coming back for all of his people. And then thirdly, Jesus' return means our permanent home. There is no longer any place left for us to go other than to be with him. He says in verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. And <laughs> Thank you, sweetie. That was pretty sly. I messed that up. I can't even get this out of here. <laughs> oh, come on. Okay, well, I got a bunch of them now. Where was I? Um, then, when, then we who are alive, or 17, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. One of the reasons why I, I don't take a premillennial view of this pa- passage, let alone a pre-tribulational premillennial view, is because of not only verses 15 and 16 and what goes on with the trumpet, but also 17. There will be no separation with God and his people. There will be no more separation. We will always be with the Lord. He says we will be caught up to meet the Lord. Caught up. There's a lot of stuff written about caught up. And some of it is right. It does refer to a forceful plunder of property. A forceful seizing of someone else's property. Just doesn't do it invisibly. So when Christ comes back, he shouts, Hey, Archangel, sound the trumpet. The dead in Christ are going to rise. And then we who are alive, the living, will be caught up. They will be commanded to, be co- to come back up to Christ. And it says, We will meet him in, meet the Lord in the air. The meet him, the, the, the calling out, the meeting of the Lord in the air is also a technical term. It's used for the, the procession of a, king, of, of, a, of a bunch of citizens of a kingdom going out of the kingdom walls to meet the conquering king on the road before he comes into town. Lot is written on, on this in just in the Roman context. Roman emperors go out to war. They're coming back into Rome. And all the dignitaries, all the important people go first. 
the dead in this passage, and then us common folk, the living, whoever that may be, go out to meet the king and greet him. We've been waiting for you. We've been waiting. It's blissful. Blissful scene. We've been waiting. We would go out, the living would go out to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The language in here isn't all literal and wooden, but it's apocalyptic, it's symbolic, it's poetic, and it's expressive. We're supposed to be, well, no pun intended, caught up in this language of power, of glory, of wonder, of victory, and say, yes, that's, that's it. It's not like fine-tuning, you know, oh, I'm going to parse this there and insert my eschatological principle there and this and that. No, it's Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, He's coming powerfully. And when he comes back powerfully, he's bringing the dead, he's bringing the living with them. And that's it. There's no more playing around. He's coming back, he's installing his kingdom, and we will forever live with the Lord. Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. He, no doubt, has encouraged them. And he says, talk amongst yourselves. Talk with one another. Encourage one another with these words. So in closing, I I just have just a couple things to say here. How often do we think of heaven? I'm not saying that to condemn anybody. I don't think about heaven enough. But heaven is our home. Imagine you are young. Eight-year-old boy or girl, and something dramatically evil happened in your life, and you were taken from your family, and you you were taken from your family, and you never heard from them again, you never saw them again, but you knew someone took me from my home. How would you not daily think, I want to go back home? I don't like you here. I want to go home. Christ is our home. Heaven is our home. I love this planet. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love you guys. Christ is way better. Christ is way better. Especially if I know I'm going to see you there. (laughs) It's like a win-win. But is heaven on our mind? Is heaven on our mind? We can't encourage each other to think about this if we're not thinking about it. We can't encourage people to think about going home, our final home, if I, if I count this my home. It was said of Richard Sibbs. Richard Sibbs has the coolest Puritan nicknames in the history of Puritanism. He's called the heavenly doctor. He's a pastor in the 1600s, I believe. 
And he was called the heavenly doctor and the sweet dropper. Because he was always just dropping sweetness of Christ in his sermons, writings. It's good. And it is said of him, I'm not trying to make us out to be Richard Sibbs. No, no, no. Much more to be Christ-like. But it said of Richard Sibbs, heaven was in him before he was in heaven. And we should all be there. We should all want to be there. That heaven I'd be pining, yearning, desiring more than everything else. I want to go home. I want to go home. There are a myriad of things which keep us eclipsed from heaven. Bad things, even good things. But our Father is in heaven. And we take on our Father's attributes. We are like Him. We take on our Lord's attributes. We're like Christ. They love heaven. They love their abode. And Christ, not only are we shown to want to be eagerly going to Him, He eagerly comes and waits the reunion of, of the whole collection of saints from the Garden of Eden to thousands and thousands and thousands of years later. How grand will that sight be? Myriads upon myriads, countless saints singing, worthy are you, worthy are you. For by your blood, you ransom people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Glory be to you. Let's look forward to going home. Gracious Heavenly Father, preserve us until that day. Hold us up and give us a joy for heaven, an expectation for glory. Not that we would be glorified, of course, but just the anticipation of being with you and seeing you face to face. Call us, call us home. quickly and with much hastening answer our prayers for our loved ones who do not know you. But will the Lord, the judge of all the earth, do right? Of course he will. We look forward to your sons appearing and may that, may that hope dispel any grief of pain we have in this life. We pray this in his name. Amen.